Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. Okay, so this is part two of interfacility transport. How do we do this? How do we get patients from one facility to the next? And we've got Michael Broman, such a rock star. The guy is published in the field. He has a world of experience, which you're about to hear. And I'm going to let him take it away. Uh, the audio is a little bit big, a little bit problematic. We're calling Sweden and a uh, little glitches, but you will be able to hear it. And I will try and intersperse anything else in there as well. All right, let's kick it away. Yeah, the department started to uh, engage in ECMO transport in 1996, and that was precluded by about uh, a, a few transports downtown in the ambulance uh, with lamps, and that worked out fine. Uh, and uh, the experience was uh, sort of uh, uh, supported by or gained by by visits from from the sort of uh, uh, Kenneth Palmer and Bruno Franklin that, that went to Ann Arbor and learned uh, most uh, at that time point concerning ECMO and it was obvious that ECMO transports had occurred already uh, like 20 years before, like in 1975 by Bartlett. And then uh, the first patient was at the end of 1996 and today we have transported about 986 patients, I think, on ECMO. And then, then there's, of course, a number of patients that, that we have uh, went out to assess, uh, but they've been too well or they've been too sick or they've been um, uh, past the line, so to say. So 980 and, uh, transports. That's uh, That's got to yeah. be the, the largest. Yeah, at least that's published and known of. So, yeah, we, we're proud, and, and I think we, we manage quite well in, in what we do. That's amazing. And so when we when we start looking at this, uh, I guess my first question is: with all that experience, what are what are the the things when we're starting to try and start a program? What are the things that people should be thinking about? They have to have a well established or at least simulated with all the parties taking part for logistics. They have to have equipment that is uh, allowed and uh, secure for, for ECMO transport concerning if it's aircraft, EMI, and also vibrations and stuff. Uh, so so the equipment won't, won't break down and see to that you have, if you go abroad, for example, you might have different connectors for, for uh, oxygen in the wall. Uh, you may have different uh, electrical plugs and stuff. You may have to consider to have power with yourself because uh, you might end up in ambulance transports where there's no no uh, power unit. So you have to rely on your own batteries, for example, and also bring oxygen. If you go for longer transport, you may have to see that you have all the oxygen that you, you may require. Uh, and also if uh, bad stuff happens, you, you might be on the transport two times longer than you uh, estimated from start, so bad weather or or ambulance breaking down aircraft that ends up at wrong airport due to fog or something. Uh, of course, you could, could have uh, call healthcare hospitals nearby and ask them to bring oxygen for you. But then it's obvious that you need to have the right connectors for that or plugs. Mm. Uh, you have to train your staff. You should do simulations, water practices, 
uh, and uh, it, it, the whole chain chain has to 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 work together and you shouldn't bring the youngest guy out the youngest lady you should have experienced after from start and you should keep it to a, a core of, of, of personnel so they get the experience and then the second line can, can learn from those that, that get the experience first because if you have it on too many hands then the, the, the individual's experience will not be that large from start and that increases the risks and um, uh, the staff should be actually working inside the ECMO unit. How that now is organized, so have a basic uh, ECMO um, experience. And best would be to to go elsewhere and learn and see a lot and and uh, try to get bring home knowledge from the centers that are already sort of up and running. And uh, information is also to be found in in published literature and also what's coming probably soon concerning organization, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so you're alluding to something big, uh, something that's coming soon. So now you are um, the most well-published person on this. So what, what do you, when you talk about the research, what, what do we see? The basic thing is to, to, to uh, think of safety. And that means that it's safety for staff, but or mostly for, for the patient. That means that for safe, uh, patient safety, you have to get to the patient very fast. Uh, and then uh, as soon as the patient is on ECMO, then the patient is sort of secured. And at, from, that point to, from that point in time, you don't have to hurry. So if uh, the patient is still unstable, you could wait for a few hours, you could wait overnight to see that this transport will be safe. Maybe maybe you put the patient on VEV ECMO and the patient needs VA, then you have time to assess and, and reconfigure, re- recannulate. Because if the patient is on ECMO, then, then the patient should also be sort of secured and, and more and more stable. Otherwise, it's probably the wrong ECMO move, and then you should, should wait and, and reconsider. Because... Uh, uh, of course, we have complications during transports, but but uh, lethal complications are very very rare. Uh, and if they occur, I would say from our experience that that uh, uh, that is dependent on what happened before you left the hospital. Ah, so it's those not are stuff that happens during the hospital. You could have prevented it in most cases, but it's it's like just a handful you you can draw that experience from. So. The risk uh, to die for the patient to die during transport is less than uh, as a few per a few per mil, I would say. A few per mil, less per, per a thousand, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I've looked at some of those research studies, like one of them, yeah, said I think a half a percent, but then other of them are showing complications into the, you know, 20, 30 percent range. What, what, yeah, is, sure. what is your opinion on that? I would say that for any, any complication or adverse event to occur, that is probably in one in four to one in three, three uh, transports. Uh, but then it's, that there's no sort of general definition of what, what is an adverse event. This is just that potassium is, is above uh, normal range, or, or uh, is it uh, that you uh, drop a cannula to the floor and the patient starts to bleed? And then when does the transport start and when does it end? We have defined it uh, as the time from where you unplug from 
where you, the unit where you put the patient on and then till the time you put uh, the plug into the next center, that will be transport time. Uh, but it's not defined. And then, uh, of course, uh, if uh, you don't report, then you have no complications. And the reporting of, of adverse events is very, very... Uh, people are not sort of uh, playing with open cards because uh, much more must happen than what's, what is actually reported. And unfortunately, we have no register for this. We have no sort of body taking care of this at this point, fall out. And I think that's needed because uh, I think that ECMO transports will increase in the future due to two factors. One is that more and more centers are running this. Uh, and then also that to do this very well is, is to consolidate the, the ECMO resource to, to, to larger centers. Then you will get more out. Uh, it will be cheaper for, for the uh, population served concerning economics and, and less less complications, more survivors, and better treatments. The whole, everything will be much cheaper and the resources better spent. Um, and for that, you need the transport teams. And they should better be sort of placed at the larger center if you work like uh, Comsetal published a few years back in a hub and spoke model. And in times of uh, pandemics or, or high load on the big center, the big center then, these supporting centers could treat the, the less sick patients mm. to make this as efficient as possible. And then you also need to transfer patients between these centers. And you, of course, need to go to the rural or, or minor hospitals to put these patients on. They're too sick to be transferred uh, on conventional support because that's very risky compared to ECMO transport. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, there's so much stuff I want to unwrap here. So point number one, you said that the complications are probably underreported. And, and I think that that is a, my look at the literature as well would, would definitely agree with that, that we have imperfect um, reporting. But the other thing is, is that you may actually not know. So if someone gets oxygen left off or you accidentally, you know, forget to turn on the sweep gas or some, some errant thing like that, um, you're not going to know that the patient has an anoxic brain injury until several days later, and you may not have even known that at the time. So those complications may go underreported simply because um, you don't know what caused what or it, it wasn't necessarily told that this, this patient uh, had some complication during the transport. So yeah, so the, the difference between that 0.5% of absolute mortality during a transport and the 30% uh, complication rate leads us to, uh, I guess, in my opinion, and I, I'd love your comment on this, very imperfect data as far as assessing the risk of transporting a patient. Yeah. Well, what we can see from our material and from, uh, from other centers too is that the mortality for the patient, the, the true mortality for the patients that are transported is the same or maybe even less than the patients that are actually put on in hospital. Uh, but that, that are major populations. But then for the individual, you can't say. And, and we, we've designed or tried to design and get ethical approval for, for following up these patients. All patients that had unreported, a reported complication during transport uh, would happen after they left the hospital. 
what, what life would call it. Could we see that this complication that occurred, does that sort of, could that be associated to, to the patient's current situation? And that's very hard to get ethical for due to the fact that it involves several registries. But we're, we're fortunate in Sweden because we have our social security numbers. They follow all life. So we can do very long, uh, long time or long time follow-ups. But, but uh, since it uh, involves several uh, parties that have to uh, allow this in the ethical and uh, legal uh, integrity perspective, it's very hard and, and it would be very expensive too and take a lot of time to get those uh, programs running for, for controlling that. So we sort of put that at rest for now, but but the question is very interesting, and uh, we have we have considered it and put some effort into to see if it was possible, and uh, it might be, but but you won't do it in half a year for sure. Not it takes much longer time to to get allowances. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so we've got these transports. We I, I also like that what you said about like just waiting a day. If they're unstable, don't do the transport. The transport is a high-risk part of this procedure. And so you may go to some facility and realize that you need to stabilize them before transport. Yeah. In most cases, in most cases stabilization occurs very fast. As soon as you get the oxygen into the patient, you get some kind of change in milieu interior. So, so, so uh, uh, if there are loads of vasopressors and inotropes, uh, just in half an hour, you, you, you're out of vasopressin. You can, you can, within the next hour, we know from maybe all the uh, epinephrine and you go home with a fraction of, of, uh, of norepi and uh, mineralone. But some patients, they won't. And then it, it, it might be better to stay uh, and see what happens. And maybe, maybe you have to, to convert the patient to another mode, another configuration, and then it's better to be in the hospital because you can't do it in the ambulance and you can't do it in an aircraft unless you go with AC-17 as the U.S. guys, U.S. military air forces. But we can't do that because we're going in tiny aircraft. It's like baby aircraft, so to say. Um, and um, you have the resources on site where you are, um, at least in... Whatever hospital you're at, you're more safe staying there till till you feel that you're uh, that you and the patient is safe to to leave, for sure. Yeah, I think, and that leads one of the things you just said though as well, uh, which I think is an important point, is that the when you retrospectively looked at the data, you found that when patients got transported, they did. Um, as well, if not better. And so the advantages of getting them to a big place like Karolinska um, versus a hospital that just doesn't do this very often or can't really treat these sick people, there are advantages to that. And you can see that in the data. Yes. And when I mean in hospital, then I mean the patients that we put on in our hospital, they, they do not do better than the one we have transported. And then the criticism comes... Well, uh, since you have this, uh, uh, the patient, they die before you reach the hospital. But, but uh, when we looked into this, it doesn't seem so. Some, pe- some patients, they, they improve. And sometimes we, we go there and we, we, we are sort of supportive at the, at the intensive care unit, turns on the opposite ventilator, and, and then the, it turns around and the patient improves. And we stay for 
three, four, five hours, maybe overnight, just to be there in case of deterioration again. And in many cases, I can't say most, but at least half, I would say that the patient continued to improve. To, to improve. So, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, mm. So tell me, tell me who we need on this team. What type of personnel do we need? Uh, you you need the staff, the, the, the categories that you have uh, in the concept or in the context where you work uh, every day. So if if the, your program is run by, by perfusionist and surgeon, then for sure you need the perfusionist on, on the trip. If it's an, an ECMO ICU where you have the ECMO specialist nurse acting as, bo- as both the uh, sort of uh, nurse for a patient and also taking care of the ECMO pump as in our setup, that then, and you don't have a uh, perfusionist, then of course it's the ECMO specialist nurse you have. If the uh, intensivist is the one that cannulates, then maybe the surgeon is obsolete, but then that sort of resource is not used in your ordinary care either unless you have surgical problems and then you, you write a, a referral. So, so uh, I think you, you, you use the concept you have in ward, the organization, those personal categories, and then you condense it so you have the most experienced and the ones that are trained to do transports, ICU transport, aircraft medicine, etc. So they need, or at least uh, one should strive in, in such uh, uh, system to, to educate the staff the core that's going for this kind of transports so they know how to, to, to do the best. Um, okay, so let me, let me kind of sum that up. Um, there, you want to have the similar people that you have at your institution on your transport team. Yes. And you, but as far as like necessity of a physician on the transport team, what is your opinion on that? Yeah, we have that, yeah, and and most actually do. Though I only, I only know one uh, provider of ECMO transports uh, that do not have physicians on the team, and and uh, and there might be one or two more, but those don't do the cannulation. They are dependent on that the the, the referring hospital. They have the resource to cannulate, but they can assist with equipment. They can assist with their know-how, their knowledge. So then they they anyway part of the process to, to do the primary cannulation. But then on the transport, it might be perfusionist or two perfusionists and ECMO specialist nurse. It, it might depend. But, but uh, as I've understood it, uh, they don't have physicians on. But all centers that cannulate themselves, they have the physician out there. They may sort of do it together, maybe with local resource physicians, uh, maybe to educate, to, to uh, make interest, uh, but on the transport, there's still one of the, the ECMO transport organizations physician on. And some some centers they have more than one physician, might be two or three, depends. Mm. But the average amount of staff going is like three and a half to four and a half, so yeah, like four. Four people on average are on the ECMO transport yeah, team. Yeah, some they go nine, so it, it differs. 
I know there is some interest, and I don't know of anyone that's doing this yet, but I know there's interest in even people that are trying to get trained to train um, nurse practitioners or physician assistants or uh, even paramedics to be able to cannulate. Um, it seems like this might have a significant risks with it. Do you have any thoughts on that and in, in this spoken hub model? Uh, well, you, you have to have the competence to take care of what mess you create. Yeah. You create. So then if you get the CBO leading, then you have to, to have the competence to, to fix that. If you can you wait uh, a newborn for VA and, and then the, the carotid snaps, you, you have to have the competence to, to, do, uh, to do thoracic surgery in the neonatal. Yeah. Uh, if you work in an adult environment, you just do, do pneumonias and ARDSs, then, uh, of course, you could be trained to it without being a physician, but I think you should always have the physician behind you because it's about resp responsibilities, it's about insurances, it's about uh, patient safety, most of all. And uh, the medical profession should be sort of uh, in that group for sure okay that, um, that's my, my personal view of this yeah I think I think that I have share a similar sentiment that you really need to have well-trained people doing this and the, the the cannulation is only one aspect of a very complicated thing that involves being able to run the machine and of course you have perfusionist but but someone that's kind of quarterbacking the whole thing needs to understand yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, one of the interesting, or what I'd like to kind of get from your experience is when you're in transport, what are the things that we need to think about? One of the things we brought up with uh, Leon was the um, idea of paralysis during transport. Are there things that during the transport that you change versus when you're in the uh, ICU setting? Yeah, we go with less uh, number of pharmaceuticals. We, we, uh, we are sort of limited in pumps, in, in uh, uh, how many continuous infusions we can have running during transport as our setup is now, but you have to have a basic uh, anagosidation. In most cases, that's morphine in our concept. It could be fentanyl to whatever a patient has, but morphine seems more stable and you have the problem with sequestration and stuff in the ECMO circuit. And then some sedative and then... Uh, in many cases, at least in Northern Europe, midazolam is there, and we, then we continue that, but we can give it at boluses. Sometimes we use muscle relaxants, depends on where the patient came from concerning uh, context of illness. But on most transports, uh, we don't use uh, neuromuscular blockades. And then the other important part is, of course, how we handle circulation. So. You, you have uh, vasopressors, inopressors, uh, inotropes, uh, but you have to maybe cut that down. And the sort of average patient, you are off uh, some of the, the vasic the substances before, be, between, uh, before you leave the, the, the hospital. Uh, so that makes it easier. And then you see to that you have given antibiotics before, et cetera, et cetera. And you have good, the last thing you do before wave off is have a blood gas, you know where you start from there. And then we'll continuous blood gas measurements during transports. 
uh, we have some kind of, we call it an ECMO ABC or ECMO mantra. You, you check that you have uh, current power to the system, the pump is uh, rolling, creating a pressure that you have a flow, the same for sweep gas, you have, you have pressure flow and, and uh, that sweep gas is running and of course that the heater is on. We always use the heater, not only for neonatals and smaller kids, we also use it in, in all the adults. Because we work in a climate zone that, that might be very cold, especially in winter time, and then you could go for safety and hypothermia. We we do not prefer to unload and reload between vehicles out in the snow. We would prefer a hangar or, or let's say a, a hospital a garage or something if it's between uh, ground ambulances. <laughs> Yeah, I think you brought up an interesting point. So uh, there's been this this picture floating around Twitter for a while about a, a jet fighter that brought a, an ECMO circuit to, a, to yeah. a patient. And I think what we don't realize is maybe many of us in the United States are visualizing, you know, that the hospital across town that put somebody on VV ECMO. But in Sweden, you're talking about like plane flights that are hours and hours long. So can you give us just a, an idea of, of the the Le- longevity of your transports? Uh, from leaving the hospital here uh, after dispatch till we get home is somewhere between 8 and 12 hours. And it, it doesn't matter so much if it's uh, as long as it's outside town or uh, in Sweden, but about uh, 300 kilometers from here, or we go to Ireland, it's about the same time. Because I have so many time thieves along. If you have a uh, transport that everything sort of goes like a watch. It might be eight hours from Ireland, but it it might be twelve hours uh, if if you have some bugs in the system, like like one ambulance is late, or, or or you can imagine anything, and then you lose time. It might benefit the patient due to that uh, you have a longer time for stabilization or, or observation before you take off. Uh, I don't think it, it harms the patient, but, but it sort of takes the resource, transport resource, out from being back at our hospital for the next alarm. And then we have to to set up a new set of crew that, that, that could cover for that. Um, so, um, and some days we, we have had like three transports on one day, then we have to have several crews out. So then there's a limiting part there too. Um, but the longer transport, transport we've had, uh, that's for over a few days, taking a patient from uh, Stockholm down to Perth in Australia. Uh, but that's a sort of single event. But most transports are under 1,500 kilometers. Yeah, 1,500 kilometers. Four, four, 400 kilometers, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is crazy. So, because um, so we're, I, I think that does change um, what we, how we think about this. So you're talking about getting a patient from a hospital, from an ICU bed, down the hospital, out into a rig. The rig then drives you to a fixed wing airplane that you have to wait for all the essentials of that. You get the patient onto the airplane. You then fly for what is you know, doesn't matter if it's one hour or 14 hours, that is a relatively small component of then getting to the airport, getting back on another rig and transporting it to another hospital. Is that kind of the idea? 
Yeah, that, that's how it looks. Though, though we have uh, some data that's actually published that, that uh, the, the time, if the time is over three hours on, on transport, that increases the risk for for um, uh, adverse events, of course. But it seems, uh, and also aircraft transport uh, carries a higher risk. But I think that is due to that you have at least, if it's fixed wing, you have at least two more unloads reloads. And then you, you, you sort of, lose focus of, of uh, all, all the stuff that's attached to the patient and you also also expose the patient to for example hypothermia or accidental extubation or, or whatever mm-hmm. by moving the patient around and, and you also have to rely on, on 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 people that might they don't know what ECMO is they don't know what that what crazy people's coming and and uh, they don't know how to react unless you have a timeout before we take the patient out, we have a plan, and if anything doesn't fit our plan, then we have to go back into the ambulance again and connect to electricity and oxygen, and then we have a new, new sort of timeout uh, so everybody knows exactly what to do. But it's hard when you have people speaking another language. You don't know even if they know English sometimes, but they're just nodding and being happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, that's a problem to communication as always communication wow uh, any complications when you get into these uh, these higher altitudes with ECMO machines yeah, you, you see that the, the patient saturation goes down a bit but but if we have a problem with that we can uh, uh, we can ask the, the, the captain to Increase the pressure in the in the cabin, or, or go to a lower altitude. Mm. Uh, but most of the case it, cases, uh, there's no problem that you could say is associated or correlated to that you're on high altitude, but a bit lower oxygenation uh, saturation. But that happens to your brain too when you're up there. So. Um, you are a, a a plethora of information. There's just so much we can glean, we can gather from uh, from your knowledge. So, just in general, is there are there other things that the listeners would like to or should know or understand about transport? Yeah, it, it could be good to realize that when you're in an ambulance or you're up in an aircraft, a sort of noise you won't hear the alarms. Mm. Uh, the the uh, wavelength of the light is not the same as you're in ward or if you're in daylight. So it might be very hard to see the color difference between the drainage limb of the tubing and the return tubing. So, so uh, uh, you really have to try to, to get the whole concept together, but the, diff- the environment surrounding you is completely different than as compared to in ward. You have the alarms, you have to see to that they're floating, recheck everything. It's like like a loop going around, uh, like reassessment, reassessment, check the tubing, feel the tubing, uh, are they warm? Is the green tube from uh, from the blender onto the oxygenator, did that jump off? Why, why does the tubing look like uh, the same dark color, but it might just be for, from the bad light? So flashlight is very good, and to keep rolling your, your reassessment loop all the time all the time yeah that seems like relatively like of course you would do that but if you're on a 12 hour trip I mean that is a, a lot of reassessment yeah 
of course you could have a cookie and a cup of coffee but, but you, you you have to be alert and if it's if it's a, a trip that's long and planned long then you you might use uh, dual staffs you have two teams you don't need to have two surgeons and two scrub nurses but but you should have uh, two professionists or, or, or two specialist nurses they order and you have two physicians that order because then the other that the other part could could rest and then you get more efficient and much safer for, for, for everyone of course mm. and any other any other data points from from your research is there any other data points that are useful for us to gather from the research or from other people's experience that you've had well, we have so much details in in what's been published, but but the the, the what people should recognize is that uh, uh, complications, uh, adverse events will occur, and you can't you can't hide from them. And the only one suffering is is the patient, and of course the healthcare givers' conscience over time. Uh, so if uh, system and development recognizes that, that complications will occur, then they will also do, do uh, practice this in wet labs and simulations, uh, and that will increase safety a lot, and it will make for sure the uh, staff in these mobile teams much more confident in, in what they do, and they will, will uh, have a much lower stress level, and maybe such system will uh, endure over time, too, with uh, maybe less on and off people in the core so you have a um, yeah very safe mobile organization i would say i i really like how you said first. yeah i really like how you said that uh it it kind of drives at a at a point that i think is so true i think this technology I, I think it really works and i think part of the reason that it doesn't always work is because of of us of the way that we have organized these things and we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot by underreporting complications because that is the issue that is the thing that we can improve and if we can improve it if we can make this into a streamlined model then our survival um you know may be a lot better than we even recognize right now yeah might be so uh, any any other things? Any other topics that we missed? No, it just occurred to me after we were done that one thing that that is quite important and, and what what uh, people might uh, miss when they construct the, their transport uh, transport stretchers, etc., or their racks is that uh, they should never have the membrane lung oxygenator above the level of the patient's heart because if you are on VV and the pump stops running a centrifugal, then you will have the hydrostatic pressure that would be negative inside the membrane line. And that will quite fast, within seconds probably, uh, make air or sweet gas pass over the respiratory membrane into the blood compartment of the oxygenator, and then it will end up in the patient when you reestablish flow. Whoa. And, uh, Whoa, wait yeah, a second. This is... Important. This is this is huge. Okay, so yeah, I know. so I we actually had this whole conversation. So my transport of patients is limited. My, probably my best experiences have been in Paris, where they do put them all of the stuff on top of the patient. 
Um, in the U.S., with the previous, with Leon that we were interviewing, they said they put all of these things on the side of the patient. Um, so your opinion is that you cannot create this huge stack on top of the patient? We've tested it. You, you can take a syringe and apply negative pressure to, to the to the blood compartment of the vent of the membrane lung, and you will draw draw out through the membrane for sure. Well, well, okay. The same, the same shit risk to happen if you're on VA and you have a clot in the arterial cannula, or, or somebody steps on the on the, the tubing and the pump stops. Then you will only have the the venous limb open. Uh, and and then still you, you you will have a negative pressure hydrostatic up in the membrane line compared to the patient's heart and then that is one part and then also the sign of the oxygenator might be something to consider because if you use some oxygenators they have a sort of a, a deliberate or not air trap inside them that they could sort of harbor 20 50 cc of air or gas while some others are, are constructed for uh, uh, no sta stagnant flow zones. And those might be sort of the uh, cylindrical, like a middle oxygenator turned upside down. So that can't harbor any air at all in, in the blood compartment. You have no air traps in it. And if you, if you get uh, two cc of, of gas into the venous limb through the pump, it will be two milliliters in the patient. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we've tested that too. So, so the uh, oxygenators we use, they, the adult one, they can they can swallow like 20 cc of air without it entering the patient. They it will get trapped in, in, in the membrane line. Uh, so that's also something to consider. But no, I don't think any transport system will switch oxygenator due to this. They will use what they have and are accustomed to. And uh, but it's something to at least be aware of, as this having the oxygenator above the patient. But as long as you have pressure, positive pressure in in the blood compartment, the bloodstream, then it's no problem. But uh, it might happen. Well, uh, it, it, it for sure is going to happen. I mean, at some point you're going to kink the arterial line. Um, just just even in yeah. for a few seconds, like when you're uh, in the ambulance or something happens. So. Yeah, that's uh, mm -hmm. if that's true, then that's a problem. Yeah. And, and then you have the other issue is uh, when unloading and re uh, reloading between vehicles. Sometimes we are, we are, we end up in ambulances that like they could look like anything, you know. And then how do we get the patient in, uh, and where do we put the pump? Because now uh, our current sort of uh, setup is that the. The pump is uh, a rack with wheels that roll beside the patient. <laughs> and then sometimes we have to put that into the ambulance before we lift the patient up. Uh, so in any reload, unload, we always try to see to that we don't lift the pump above the patient. And if we have to, we, we really see to that no, no tubing risk to be sort of uh, kinked or anything. Uh, and we're very aware of that it, this might occur. And from this, we have created a new stretcher where we have uh, the console and everything built into the stretcher. And that weighs totally all equipment, 35 kilograms. That, that, that's in the process of be, being licensed for aircraft transport uh, within the month, probably. And that seems to be a very safe system. And, if you, uh, and uh, then we 
the only thing we if we transport a neonatal or a small kid then everything will be on that stretcher uh, the only thing that connects to the world outside will be the, the 230 uh, volt AC plug. Everything else is on there, and it weighs like 35 kilograms plus the patient, plus the heater. And uh, it will be fast and very safe, even though we, if we're in the in the depths of Finland in a, in, a, in a snowstorm in the blizzard, hmm. uh, compared to what what uh, we have to stand uh, up with until today. And if it's an adult patient, it will only be the heater that won't be on the stretcher. And in an adult, we can conserve that heat for, for three, four minutes. That's no problem. But in neonatal, if it's sub-zero, centigrade, uh, it takes like five minutes. And then, then it's motor hypothermia, 28 centigrade, even if you have the heat on maximum. So you have to protect them. We don't have that problem in San Diego. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and you got you got aircraft carriers on water too. We don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got an aircraft carrier sitting right outside my house. Um, uh, yeah, I've seen them. Oh, jeez. Okay, so this is oh, this is really really good stuff, Michael. Um, yeah, I just want to unwrap that. So we, hypothermia, we got to think about it. I transport for for these austere environments. Don't put the the pump above the patient, and and uh, and these built-in uh, carts or built-in gurneys, where and that is held. I'm assuming like right at the feet. Where is the pump put in these built-in gurneys? Yeah, if it's on. Uh it would be between the, the calves, the lower legs, if it was a full-size human being. That's, that's where it's so built it, in, it, so the, the legs are spread apart just a little bit? Yeah, just a little bit. We can't keep them close because we use electronics, and then you have the convection uh, cooling of the, the, the driver unit. Uh, so, so actually, in that setup, the oxygenator will be more to the level of the heart. Yeah. Keep everything compact, but never above. And we will have uh, maybe patients would be higher up because they be on a, on a mattress too that lifts the patients higher up. Uh, but it's it, the major point is keep the oxygenator not above the patient's heart. So when I said pump, when unloading, unload, reload, then it's due to that those those are on the same rack. Uh, if you understand me, mm-hmm. for sure. Okay. Sure. Well, that that's fantastic. Uh, I I could just talk yeah. with you all day. All right, so let's wrap this up. This is the EDECMO podcast on transport, and I'm with Joe to kind of make some concluding remarks. Joe, how are you? Doing great, Zach. Thanks, buddy. Um, so here's what I learned. I learned that this is a very uh, widespread. There's a continuum on the idea of transport. Everything from Leon, where we're talking about transport of patients around town in Atlanta, versus uh, Michael in Sweden, where you're talking about 14-hour transports. I think one of the things that I just found so interesting is he said, "I don't care if I'm going to Perth, Australia, or if I'm flying just uh, you know if going down the road to the next hospital. I need to expect extended amount of times. That these things are 12-hour turnarounds, regardless of how you do them. You need to have be prepared with oxygen and all the supplies, everything you need 
for 12 hours um, on these transports. So no matter the time it takes to actually do the transport, you got to carve out a good chunk of time because it's going to take you 12 hours to do the whole thing. Yeah, because when, they're, when you're talking about getting them from the ICU, figuring out if they're stable, sure. interacting with the doctors over there, if you're going to do some sort of fixed wing thing, then you've got to get it on an ambulance, transport it to an airport, deal with all the problems with getting on an airplane or a helicopter or whatever you're doing to transport getting them off that and then back on another ambulance to the hospital and then setting up shop at your own place. It is an involved procedure. Just a giant logistic like quagmire. Yeah. So Leon talked about in Atlanta having like um, traffic as a problem. So you need to be prepared for these long distances, even if they're short distances. You can't run out of oxygen on the way. You can't run out of, uh, you know, electricity on the way. These are considerations. You got to be well prepared. Yep. You got to have the, the the Chris Ho of excessive redundancy. <laughs> For those of you that don't know Chris Ho, uh, that's a lot, a lot of redundancy. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of extra pelvises we carry. All right. Uh, the, I guess the next thing that we learned about is that you got to think about components. That if you're going to a facility, they may not have the same machine that you have. And so if you're going to be taking the patient back, which machine are you going to take? Are you going to transfer them onto a new machine? Like these things need to be thought of well in advance. So if you're developing a hope uh, spoke and hub model, then the, pay, the people that you are going to get, they need to have the same machine as you do or have some sort of relationship where you can take their machine back to your facility and your people are trained on how to use that machine. Yeah, you show up with a Rotaflow, McKay Rotaflow, and they're using cardi cardio help. The circuitry is completely different. So you have to plan those things well in advance. Yeah. And then maybe there's a lot of other things here, but I think maybe the last take-home point that Michael made, which is that sometimes you just got to wait. If the patient is unstable, if they are on a lot of pressors, you may not be able to have those kind of drips on a fixed-wing plane or in the back of a, a helicopter. You may have to just wait, and that may mean 24 hours. That may mean allowing them to stabilize. Um, don't transport somebody who is going to die on you in the middle of a helicopter. It just, it's, a, it's a very big problem. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I like the data on this. I think we talked about the limitations on the data. We underreport our complications, and that hurts us. By underreporting, we, we fail to make the improvements that we need. This is the type of stuff that we know from even work in our ER. If we can just figure out ways to improve our processes, then in the end, it's safer for the patients. And we realize the true benefit of this technology because we don't have these, we don't, we don't, um, we don't call, we don't call the problem, the technology. We assess that the real issue is our organization. And that can uh, that can decrease our uh, the efficacy that we see through ECMO. If only there was a ECMO conference that offered a transport module to it, that'd be uh, fantastic. Do you know? Uh, great thing. So ending this, we do next month. Reanimate six is fantastic. We have a transport section. Uh, it, it, we have people signed up. Uh, Leon is going to be there. We have all the greatest people. Bob Bartlett, Scott Weingart, Joe and I, Chris, um, Amy Hackman. Joe DeBose. Joe DeBose. Uh, the all-star group with Zaf as well, Jim Manning. Yeah, yeah. 
So come on out, uh, sign up for transport. But this, this, these two uh, podcasts, these two interviews were absolutely fantastic. Thank you to Leon Edelman and Michael Broman. You guys are rock stars. From Ediacmo and Joe Belezzo. Signing out. <laughs>